Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, and welcome to our viewers. My name is Jason Togut, Program Assistant at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today are Earl Carr and Carolyn Kassan. Earl Carr is Chief Global Strategist at Pivotal Advisors, where he manages the global research team. He also serves as adjunct professor at NYU's Center for Global Affairs. Dr. Carolyn Kassan is the Academic Director of the Graduate Programs in Global Affairs and Global Security, Conflict, and Cybercrime at the NYU Center for Global Affairs. She also serves as director of the School of Professional Studies' Energy, Climate, Justice, and Sustainability Lab, and a professor teaching graduate courses on the geopolitics of energy, comparative energy politics, environment and resource security, and climate change and security. Their full bios have been posted to our website. Earl and Carolyn are here today to discuss their recent book, From Trump to Biden and Beyond reimagining U.S.-China relations. I'd like to start off with two questions addressed to both of you. First, what surprised you the most about writing your chapters? Um, Carolyn, I'll start first if that's all right with you. Um, it's a great question, Jason. And first and foremost, thank you so much for this opportunity and the extraordinary leadership of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Um, and I cannot think of more um, important institution at this important inflection point between US-China relations. So thank you for your leadership, Steve Orland's leadership and the entire team at the National Committee. Um, in terms of what surprised me most about writing my chapter, I would say two things. First, it was the ability to take, um, you know, we, we, we described what are some key, what, what's a key roadmap for the United States to be able to engage effectively with China during this unique inflection point in US-China relations. And I think for us, one of the important things that we took away from writing our chapter was that there is a significant cost when the United States and China cannot work collaboratively together. We saw that in the last four years with the Trump administration, uh, with the trade war, um, consumers were, in, were significantly impacted, governments were impacted, nonprofits were impacted, um, a whole array of institutions were negatively impacted. And so one of the key things that surprised us was how much support um, our chapter generated from the private sector, from government officials who said, look, we've got to get this relationship right, not just now, but for the future and future generations. If we look at climate change, and I think COP26, and I know Carolyn will talk about this in particular, but just looking at the fact that the United States and China need to work more collaboratively together on thing or th all things like cleaner energy technologies that are good, not just for the United States and China, particularly as you look at the transnational issues of, of just wind, right? And, and, the, and the cross border of, of, of sediments that come across from from China to California. That's a transnational issue that impacts both the United States and China. If you look at the Belt and Road Initiative and the, import, and the amount of cement, the, the millions amount of cement that is released in the atmosphere, that is a global fundamental issue that the United States and China should be working more collaboratively together on. Terrific. Um, 
Thank you. And thank you, Jason, and many thanks to the National Committee on US-China Relations. It's been such a pleasure just working with you all to get to, to, get to this event and um, also just to all the work that you do. Uh, yeah, to, you know, to pick up on what Earl has said, I know distinctly my chapter, which, which looks at energy and the, the US-China relationship around energy, and I also delve into climate change, but we also have another co-author, Jackson Ewing, who's at Duke University, who really does the deep dive into US-China around climate change. But, you know, I've been teaching and working in the energy space since the early 2000s, and as I was writing the chapter, I was really struck by where China, where China was in, for example, 2005, as in terms of its energy demand and where it was within the, the larger global energy system and where it is today in 2021. It is the largest importer of oil. It is a energy giant, both in terms of what it needs and what it's also supplying. So, you know, just to, to echo what Earl had said around, you know, clean energy technologies, you know, China is very much at the forefront of solar manufacturing, wind, wind manufacturing, wind turbines, you know, so many of the technologies that we need in the larger global energy transition and deep decarbonization, many of those technologies will and are coming out of China. So there's a real demand for the US and China to find better ways to cooperate and to collaborate and, you know, a, a hopeful sign was this week, you know, at COP26, where you did have the US and China, you know, coming together, I would say it was, it was rather weak, but nonetheless significant in that there was a joint statement around the need for cooperation and a accountability around here, we have the two largest emitters in the world of carbon emissions that are, you know, taking some responsibility for what each country needs to do and how they need to be leaders for the rest of the world. Terrific, thank you so much. Well, both of you certainly touched on my second question, which is related to the policy of engagement. So can we even make a strong case for the policy of engagement in the United States? I believe you know, both of you sort of touched on this, but you know, the policy of engagement um, has come under increased scrutiny. Um, several notable scholars, the United States, Kurt Campbell, current government official has claimed that engagement is dead. Um, can we make a strong pol uh, case for this policy? And, and if so, how, how would you go about doing it? Jason, great, great question. And I think the, the whole fundamental thesis of this book um, argues that engagement with China is the, only, uh, is the only fundamental path on a variety of transnational issues that only the United States and China um, can, can really work on. And I'll touch on uh, a, a few of these issues. Number one, when we look at just the, the proliferation of nuclear weapons or, or a, a potential conflict occurring in the South China Sea, the cross straits, um, I think it's so critically important that um, the United States and, and China get to a point where we establish important codes of conduct. We, we establish some basic modicums of, um, of communication where uh, you know, the, the saber rattle, we're, we're able to ratchet down the saber rattling so that, you know, um, we have a, a basic modicum of, of understanding so that we're, we're not, in one case, over predicting or underestimating China's abilities and vice versa. 
number one. Number two, I think it's critically important that on the economic components, right? We all acknowledge both the United States and China, and China that there is no such thing as a fundamental decoupling um, between the US and China's economy. That would be catastrophic for both the United States economy and the, and the, and the Chinese economy. And, and if you ask people both in the private sector and, and, and governments, they, they will privately acknowledge that that's not really realistic to be able to fundamentally decouple our economies. And so I think it's so important that even if we cannot find common ground on human rights and we have very significant disagreements on, and when you look at the issues of Xinjiang, Tibet, and a whole variety of other human rights issues, or if we look at the issue of where COVID comes, the origins of COVID, that cannot and should not preclude us from trying to find common ground on a plethora of other important transnational issues like transnational crime, like um, transnational health issues. And you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think about, you know, there's so many references to the Cold War um, between the United States and China. Well, I think if we look at the Cold War, I think you'll find that at the, at the pinnacle of the Cold War, the United States and Russia could not agree on who should have and possess nuclear weapons, but they could agree on one thing, and that was eradicating polio. And so you saw for the first time scientists from the United States and Russia working together in concert at the United Nations and a variety of other institutions. And for the first time, we were able to eradicate polio. And I think that when the United States and China, through a, a framework of engagement, have a common purpose, have a common goal, I think we can achieve so much on a variety of transnational issues. Couldn't agree with Earl more. Um, you touched upon some of the points that I was going to raise, especially on the economic front around you know, this idea of decoupling. It's, it's farcical on so many different levels. We just have to sort of look at our lives and look at you know, how, how products from China are very much part and parcel of our everyday, um, our everyday lives. Um, also, I'm, you know, I'm at New York University. I mean, we have deep engagement with Chinese students across the U.S. higher education ecosystem. There are hundred, I think it's about two hundred thousand students come to the United States to study, and they are important to the economics of higher education in the United States. And of course, on the, you know, on the both on the energy and the climate front. On energy, you know, the United States is a very large producer of oil and natural gas. Natural gas that we that we then make into liquefied natural gas, and we sell that oil and some of that gas, that LNG, to China. So there already is many areas of engagement. And around climate change, I think again, going back to what I said earlier, and it's interesting. Some people are noting that. Climate, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry and China's climate envoy Xi Jinping, forgive the pronunciation, had a already existing relationship that was forged in 2014 when the United States and China really came together um, ahead of uh, ahead of Paris in 2015 to say, listen, it really does matter what what happens here. And if the US and China do not come out on some common footing, then the rest of the world will not follow. So this week where there was a lot of, you know, if you only look 10 days ago at the start of the climate conference in Glasgow, people were very pessimistic. It did not look like there was going to be any kind of engagement between the United States and China. She was not showing up 
in Glasgow, um, you know, President Biden was making disparaging comments about China's absence. And yet, yet just two days ago, uh, you have the United States and China coming out with a joint statement. So I am, I tend to be more optimistic about engagement, recognizing that, of course, there are some very significant areas where China does um, does pose a threat and the United States sort of needs to also be on competitive footing. But overall, overall, I, I tend to see where we must engage and where we have to create deeper areas of engagement. Jason, if I can make one quick point, uh, something that Carolyn raised that was that's so critically important is on the issue of Chinese students coming to study in the United States. The International, the Institute of International Education, i.e., puts out a report every year, 2000, from 2019 to 2020, about 393,000 Chinese students studied in the United States. Um, if you look at the number of American students that studied in China during that same period, it's roughly about 10,000, and that number has declined. And that number is declining. And so when you look at the whole ecosystem of innovation that has occurred in the United States, a number, and just look at the number of companies in Silicon Valley from Zoom to a variety of other um, you know, in, in, innovative technologies, those came from um, immigrants who came from other countries, whether they be China and various other countries. And I think it's so important that we continue to foster policies that encourage and support Chinese students that come to the United States, not just for fueling the United States economy, but these students oftentimes end up working as engineers in a variety of companies from Microsoft to Facebook to you name it, um, and have been an important engine of growth for the United States. Many of them also go back to China and work in a variety of co companies there. So this is a win-win situation for both the United States and China. So any policies that are antithetical to um, decreasing immigration to the United States is, is, is not fostering a stronger economic cooperation, both to, to both the United States and China. Thank you so much. Hopefully from your mouths to policymakers ears in Washington, I sincerely hope that they take what we're saying at the National Committee and many other similar institutions very seriously and understand the cost of not engaging China. Yes, absolutely. So, and it was, it was one of the recommendations that we put in our book as well. Terrific. Well, over to you, Earl. Chapter one discusses this paradigm of offense and defense, with China playing offense and the United States playing defense. It mentions the United States needs to define a winning strategy. In your mind, in the long run, what does winning look like? That's a great question. And um, it, it's controversial from, from, from many reasons because you know, as the United States and, and our, our notions of American exceptionalism, we, we don't take well to losing. Um, you know, we, we can't envision a world where, where the United States is number two. Um, but if, if, if we face the fundamental reality of where growth trends are going, if, the United, if China's economy continues to grow that it, uh, it, the way that it is, I mean, we saw uh, third quarter, second quarter growth at about 7.9%. We saw third quarter growth about 4.9%. Uh, and even though it's slowing, but if you look at the trajectory of growth, um, China is expected to surpass uh, the United States uh, in the future. We, we can debate on when that is, but, if, but the reality is that if current trends con continue, that is the tra trajectory. 
number one. Number two, I think it's important to understand that what, what does winning look like in the United States? And is that, you know, the United States uh, and, and China in many ways has looked at parity with the United States as an important fundamental way of legitimacy within the Chinese government, but more importantly, for the modernization of China's um, economic growth and development. Um, you saw this in the 1960s with, um, you know, parity with, with nuclear weapons, right, and nuclear technology. Um, and, 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 and there was a great piece in the New York Times just um, uh, last week uh, in which China by the, by the year 2030 is expected to have about a thousand nuclear uh, warheads. So this notion of, 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 of parity with the United States has, has been imp an important historical part of both competition and cooperation with the United States. If you looked at the 1980s with China's accession into the World Trade Organization was also an important component of, of trying to achieve parity with the United States. And if you look at now um, in, in the era of A, uh, artificial intelligence and, and the digital um, currency world and realm, I mean, that's an important um, area where, the United, where China is striving for parity in the United States. And to be honest with you, the reality is the United States is currently losing the, the race with China with respect to 5G and a host of other um, technologies. If you look at the numbers of inventions and just patents that the United States, that, that China has established year to date and, and, and through its inception, MIT put out this great report. China has filed over 78,000 inventions. If you look at the United States, the United States has found has, has um, filed 28,000 inventions. So just looking at the, 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 those basic concepts, um, you know, what, does, what, does, what does winning look like? I think for the United States, I think it's being able to calibrate and understand that look, at some point, all hegemons fall. And either you fall gracefully or you fall non-gracefully, right? And I think an important point for the United States is to be able to calibrate on a variety of, of, of issues where we don't miscalculate on the issues of Taiwan. We don't miscalculate, overplay our, our hand or underplay our hand with respect to China, but have an open, frank and transparent conversation engagement on a variety of issues, work with China where we can, confront and, and engage where we, where we can't. Thank you so much. Well, one area where it seems the United States and China are both winning is on the climate front. Now, Carolyn, you mentioned in your chapter how it is likely that the US and China will remain fiercely competitive going forward. Um, what are some guardrails, if you will, that the United States and China can put up in the energy realm to prevent this competition from going south? So again, not to be repetitive, but you know, I think Wednesday's joint announcement is one one sort of signal, right? If we, if we look at what happens at these very large global conferences, that the signals that they send out, um, that it's a signal that there is this opening in the climate space for greater cooperation. That said, you know, I, I think we also have to recognize that this is not going to be, you know, a kind of a, a walk in the park between the US and China. I think that there that the fierce competition is going to remain. I, I, you know, Earl gave the, 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 the data on the number of new patents coming out, right? That's 
technological superiority, right? Who's going to hold it is an area where there's really fierce competition. If the United States were to say, listen, we're no longer going to import solar panels or we're going to put restrictions on companies in, in the, the supply chain for renewable energy technologies, batteries. There's a lot of areas where things could go south if, if, the, if policies are put into place that are more restrictive than expansive. Um, around energy exchange, around exchange of technological innovation that is part of, you know, I think it's really interesting when we're thinking about what deep decarbonization looks like, because we have a lot of technologies that, that do exist, but we also have a lot of technologies that don't yet exist that we need. And which countries are going to be you know, creating the, the fertile ground to support, to support that innovation of research and development. And I think it's very clear from what we're seeing in China that China is very much sort of putting that as a, um, as a priority. Also here in the United States, I think we oftentimes don't give enough credit or attention to what's happening across our national labs, um, what's happening in the private sector. There's just, there's so many companies that are, you know, really seeing this as, um, they're very purpose-driven. They see that this, you know, code red for humanity, right, which was, you know, came out of the most recent IPCC report. Uh, so, and also how, how China and the United States react and work with their own allies and alliances, right? So Earl talked earlier about the Belt Road Initiative. We now have a green BRI. So how China is going to push out exports of what are you know more cleaner, uh, less carbon-intensive technologies? What how the United States is going to help fund uh, climate finance in um, in different parts of the world? And I think one area that again maybe doesn't get a lot of attention, but really really important around renewable energy um, when we're talking about batteries is that of critical minerals. So China is the you know holds a monopoly on much of critical mineral processing. So not just rare earths, but even you know, cobalt that gets extracted out of the DRC, it goes back to China for processing. Lithium, much of the processing of lithium happens in China. So you know, China could use this, um, this monopoly of mineral processing, you know, in a, in a way to weaponize it. I don't see it happening, but again, we, I think it's important in the context of this conversation to, to consider the various possibilities, but also understand that it would ultimately not be good for China to do that because this is, this is you know, these are, these are things that China can be ahead of um, with regards to, to its own exports. Just to push you a little bit on Glasgow, um, do you think the agreement is ambitious enough? And what kind of a time frame do you think we should take when, when judging this, this agreement? So it's a great question. And I would say that it's absolutely not uh, rigorous enough, that it, it really lacks in substance. So good words, it sounds great on paper, but when you start looking for more of the specifics, you're not going to find them. And so there's, you know, as Glasgow wraps up, 
lots of questions as to whether or not we're still not, you know, this call for we have to stay within 1.5 degrees, that neither the United States nor China is coming out of Scotland having done enough to commit to staying within 1.5. So most scientists are saying that given all the commitments that were made in Glasgow that were about 2.7, 2.8 degrees of, of warming that um, that is ahead of us. Uh, China and the United States both refrain from committing to banning internal combustion engines by 2035. Um, so in some of the big areas, like some of the big commitments, both the United States and China were, were weak on, um, on action. I think the methane emission uh, rule is very important. Deforestation by, you know, ending deforestation by 2030. On the private sector front, very exciting. Um, but I think US and China, again, take a deep dive into, into into what they into this into what they have pledged, it still remains, I think, weak. And for most most people who are really hoping for a big win out of um, out of Glasgow, it's um, it's 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 not so it's not a big win. Yeah, if I could just add one 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 important factor, uh, it's a great question, Jason. And I would just add, you know, it's important that you put things in context, right? when you ask this question. Um, in 2007, um, Premier Wen Jiabao announced for the first time ever that China did not meet its standards with respect to environmental development. And I think that was important because prior to 2007, China had always said it had met all of its standards. And so I think the announcements at Glasgow are symbolic. They're lacking the details, but I think it's more important that we look at, you know, the, the symbolic gestures and how do we build on those momentums, right? How do we build on those, those, those incremental um, goals of intentionality to focus on these issues of environmental concerns, decarbonization. And I think as more people in China um, become more cognizant of how the environmental impact impacts their daily lives now, I think we'll continue to get more momentum in that direction going forward. Can I just do a quick follow-up because something that what Earl just said is really incredibly important. Um, and this great research that comes out of the University of Chicago is that of air quality, you know? Um, and what we've seen in China, especially since 2013, you know, if you go back to the headlines coming out of Beijing and Shanghai that, you know, kids couldn't go to school because air quality was so poor, that the air quality index was really, um, was really doing a lot of political damage, right? It wasn't just societal health damage, but it was also political damage. And we have seen a reduction in negative air quality data coming out of, uh, coming out of China, especially in, from Shanghai and Beijing. And I, I, Chinese leaders understand that the environment matters, that the health of the um, of their cities, of their provinces matter. And when that starts to really fall, that, that can create some you know, seismic changes that, that can be very, very damaging to the, um, to the party. So I don't believe this is just lip service. I think we have seen some very significant 
changes that have happened in China. They need to do a lot more. It's still very coal dependent, over 60% of, like, that can't change overnight. Although I was reminded in a conversation that I was having, I visited China in 1992. I mean, my first visit to China, I got off the Trans-Siberian in Beijing, coming, having come from Moscow. It was a sea of bicycles. Very few cars were on the road. Beijing was, you know, was not a, a very developed city. And I think any of us that travel to China today recognize how rapidly they not just modernized, but they transformed much of the country, the number of people that have been taken out of poverty. So I think when China sort of says, we're gonna do something, it's a little bit easier for them to take the reins and do it because there's, there's they oftentimes can do it without, la without with less political deep opposition, which of course in the United States, you know, we, 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 we are oftentimes partisan on these uh, issues around investments in infrastructure, investments in, you know, do we, do we continue to, you know, to support a, a fossil-based economy? Like there's just, I think these are some really interesting areas to be looking at over the coming years. So Earl, just, just a, so we just, we just touched on investment a little bit. I'd like to push you a little bit on, on the investment question. Um, it was recently announced, uh, Financial Times recently announced that global holdings of Chinese stocks and bonds had risen to 1.1 trillion US dollars. That's up over $120 billion in 2021. And investors are direct, investing more directly onshore as opposed to through offshore instruments such as New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Do you see this as a permanent shift? Do you think that people are just going to start investing more directly in renminbi or is this just a result of, of regulators? That's a great question. Um, I think there's there's several components within your within your question. I think number one, I think that there will be continued uh, investment from Chinese companies into the United States uh, in the future. And I, and I say that for a variety of reasons. Number one, you know when you when you speak to Chinese investors that list, um, listing in China, in Shanghai, listing in Hong Kong is important. But to be known as, as a global company, you want to list in a foreign exchange. And it's really critically important that um, it, it's, it's the prestige, it's, it's the ability to raise capital, not just in China, but in a variety of different institu institutions. And so being able to list in the, in the, in the United States, in New York, on, on Wall Street, being able to list in London will continue to be important for the foreseeable future. Um, the regulatory side will be harder. There's gonna be more hoops that Chinese companies have to go through. Um, we saw this in particular after the whole Luckin scandal, where um, you know Luckin essentially you know used a similar um, you know it was kind of like the the Starbucks equivalent, um, but there, there was a, 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 a you know endemic fraud. You saw the the, the valuation of of um, uh, Luckin you know decreased by over fifty percent, and 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 there were huge and and that sent a huge you know the the implications of that sent a huge sent huge rever reverberations around you know, Americans investing in Chinese companies, you know, what are, what, what are the broader implications of that? But to get to your question, I think in the foreseeable future, Chinese companies will continue to list in the United States, London, and various other exchanges. Thank you so much. We're a little short on time, so I just want to take a step back for a second. Um, 
you know, given given the just the, the souring nature of the U.S.-China relationship, I just was wondering, is the China generalist career path dead? I mean, previously you had people who studied Chinese, maybe went into the intelligence committee or a community or, you know, did something along those lines. And just having this Chinese language knowledge was enough to have a career in China. Do you think that that path is still open or do people really just have to specialize more now? It's a great question. Um, so I first went to China in 1998. And um, similar to, to Carolyn, I went a few years after Carolyn, you know, I was, I was following in her footsteps. And, um, you know, I, I think for me, it, it was it was personal. I'm, I'm half Chinese. My, my father's black from Jamaica, and I've never really been able to connect with my, my Chinese heritage. And so it was a really fascinating and unique experience for me. Um, and then it turned into when I saw the energy and the transformative, I mean, um, uh, um, you know, things that are taking place in China, similar to, to Carolyn's story. I mean, I remember studying at Beishida, Beijing Norm University. I was on a foreign dorm and there were 20 of us and there was one phone for all 20 of us. And I had to wait 20 minutes to, to call and speak to my sister who had just given birth to my new nephew and hear his voice for the first time. And then 20 years later, working professionally in uh, Shanghai, working for um, uh, HSBC Bank, traveling on a high-speed rail train using a strong Wi-Fi network that I was going beyond the firewall of, 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 of China because the network was better. And I was using a phone that was being manufactured in, in factories in, in several provinces nearby, um, I think just speaks volumes to the transformative changes. And I think that for people who wanna work in China and be known as a China expert, it, just knowing Mandarin in, in and of itself is not going to be enough. Um, I started off as being a China specialist. I then got a scholarship to study in Japan and, and, and studied at um, International Christian University, spent, spent a year studying in Tokyo, but then started broadening and, and wanted to get an understanding of China within the broader realm of East Asia and broader Southeast Asia. So I did my master's thesis on China and its economic free trade agreement with ASEAN and did field research in Thailand, Malaysia. So I think for the China experts of both yesterday, today, and tomorrow, I think, you know, really the notion of a globalized China, that it's not China, learning China in and of itself, but understanding China within the broader East Asia, Japan, um, South Korea, East Asian allies, but also China, understanding China within the broader framework of, of Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and the broader global community, I think will help differentiate China experts going forward. Thank you, I wonder, Carolyn. Yeah, no, I, I won. I commend anyone who's studying uh, Mandarin. I do think it's so critical. I think if you're, as a generalist, right, if you're to have that language capability, and I think it gives you an opportunity then to kind of understand multiple sectors, right, to be able to sort of jump in because you have that linguistic uh, capability to, to, to understand the context. So I would very much say that if, if continue to study Chinese, and that should be something that the United States also better supports in terms of scholarships. I, I think it's really critical. It's, it's a critical language for the United States, and it's one that we should be doing a lot more to help help U.S. students to study. And to, you know, going back to what uh, Earl said earlier, is just to be sending more students to China, right? Because there's clearly a, a very significant imbalance between the uh, student exchange you know, it always helps to have an area uh, that there's 
you know, if it's cyber, if it's energy, uh, if it's, you know, international relations, if it's, you know, peace and conflict, but something that, but if you can marry that with, with, with language, that just catapults you into positions, I think it's, um, it makes you more competitive. So I would say that definitely I, I continue to support what it means to be a generalist, but to marry the being a generalist with an area that's a kind of an area of specialization that you can bring something um, in addition to your sort of more broad understanding and uh, of China and, and, and linguistic ability. Yeah, and I'll say last, one other quick thing is language is critically important, like what, what Carolyn said, but also having the cultural comp uh, competence is also very important. Understanding, you know, what certain things you do you not send as gifts in China. I remember learning, you know, when I studied in China, like, um, right, like not give a, a, a pair and what or, or, or sending a clock, right, well, because of cultural, you know, implications of that, of, of what that means. And so I think in um, our, our very globalized, um, you know, society, understanding um, both the language, but marrying that with the culture and the cultural competence is also very critically important. Well, thank you so much. That's very instructive, especially for young people in this field like myself who are really sort of trying to trying to navigate this very, very difficult environment in US-China relations. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn and, and Earl for joining me today. We've only just really scratched the surface of some of these critical issues, but I do think uh, this conversation has really made a strong case for engagement and the costs for decoupling, which is really what I was hoping to highlight today. Thank you so much to our viewers um, for staying with us. And just a reminder, the title of the book is From Trump to Biden and Beyond, Reimagining U.S.-China Relations, and it's available anywhere you buy your books. Um, if you like this interview, please be sure to check out our website uh, and subscribe to our newsletter so you can keep up to date on the latest of all of our programming. And thank you very much for tuning in today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.